Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am Jacqueline Friedman. This week, I thought it was more than time. It was half past time to take a deeper dive given SESTA slash FOSTA was signed into law this week and the uh, SB 1204 that I was talking about on last week's show. Basically, if you don't know what's been going on, go listen to the last few episodes and get caught up. But we're in a major moment where sex work in specific is being criminalized at a new level and a new dangerous pace. And, uh, And I thought it would be good to take a moment and take stock of how we got here and what it all means and how maybe we can get to a better place. And so I'm really thrilled to be talking today to someone that I was just introduced to, but seems like the perfect person to talk to about this. Her name is Claudia Kochikaro, and she is a criminologist uh, who specializes in studying and talk- and thinking about sex and sex work. So Claudia, thanks for coming on Unscrewed. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, you are definitely the person I want to talk to about this stuff. But before we get into it, as you know, on Unscrewed, we put all our guests through the lightning round just to get to know you a little. So the first question is, what has been making you happy this week? Oh, I got some books. Oh, yeah. Are you reading anything good? Anything you want to recommend? Mm, let me see. Yes, Not a Crime to be Poor by Peter Edelman. All right. Excellent. It's a little uh, controversial, but a little controversy doesn't hurt anyone. Right? <laughs> well, that's not strictly true, but books definitely do make me happy. <laughs> All right. Second question is, what is the best sex advice or some of the best sex advice you ever received? Mm, I think uh, it's about engaging in uh, kink. Yeah. Like in BDSM, that's the best sex advice that I've ever had. That someone suggested you try it? What was the advice? I don't know if it's a suggestion to try it. Just, uh, just it's uh, it's good to um, work therapeutically, work through trauma. Actually, who, who told you that? Do you remember? Um, my psychiatrist. Oh, excellent! Good for them. All right, this next question I feel like uh, is kind of probably the answer is what we're going to talk about on the show. But I <laughs> ask it to everybody: like, 
What's been making you the maddest or saddest around the sexual culture lately? I think what makes me upset, uh, it, it really makes me angry, and it's really hard to get me angry. But what really upsets me is the passing of Sesta Fusta as a survivor of trafficking in the sex industry. I know how dangerous this can be. And I believe that we will see a lot of bad consequences, uh, terrible consequences for most marginalized people. Yeah, absolutely. All right, fourth question is, what is a myth or, or a wrong thing about sex that you used to believe but you don't believe anymore? A sex is bad. A sex is supposed to be enjoyed only by a select group of people, those who are married, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to think that women did not have sex on their own terms. That left to our own devices, women would not ever want to have sex. Um, it's more like women could not have sex on their own terms. There was just a, a way that I think I was raised and I was socialized. Yeah. Um, I'm not certain that this is the same for everybody, but I believe this may be a, a uh, possibility. Uh, it's like it may be how a lot of women feel that they're not supposed to enjoy sex on their own terms. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that a lot on this show. And then lastly, who is someone who you want to give a shout out to who you think is doing really brave or good work to unscrew the sexual culture? Okay, to the Adamo. Okay, De Adamo? Yeah. Yeah, tell us about her. I, I've met her a couple of times, but I don't know that the audience knows her. De Adamo is a policy advisor. She has been doing great work uh, um, organizing, the gra- grassroots organizing and policy uh, to, to support policy that helps sex workers and absolutely marginalized uh, groups like LGBTQ and other, uh, particularly trans sex workers, actually. Do you remember the name of the org she's working for? I've seen her quoted everywhere on the SESTA conversation. She is doing amazing stuff. But the, I'm blanking on the name right now. I think she used to work for a Sex Workers Project in New York, but I think she may uh, be affiliated with Freedom Network. I think she does a lot of independent work Got it. at this point. All right. Well, we'll link to some of her stuff in the show notes at JacquelineFreeman.com so you can find her. Awesome. Well, that's the lightning round. Thanks for uh, indulging me. So this is a tough topic. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Where should we dive in? I don't I don't think that the audience needs I don't think that the folks listening need to have a basic explanation of Sesta Fosta because mm-hmm. we've been talking about it on the show these last few weeks. But what I do kind of want to do is give folks a sense of like a deeper sense of what you think is to come with these laws being passed and also some historical context, right? When did the narrative shift? I feel like there's been a shift to sort of, or maybe it's just been a shift in my awareness, so you can correct me. Mm. Have laws about sex work always conflated sort of consensual or voluntary sex work and trafficking? Or is is that a new sort of, I feel like there was this shift maybe in the late 90s in feminist discourse, especially about like, because we couldn't just say prostitution is bad anymore, 
we just sort of right. started saying everybody is a victim of trafficking instead. Is is that right? Is that a new conflation or was was trafficking and sex work always conflated? The idea of trafficking appeared uh, periodically across time ever since, uh, you know, the white slave panic, um, late 1800s. And then uh, Jessica Plyley has, uh, she's a historian, has a formidable book on the Mann Act. She, it's called uh, Policing Sexuality. She talks about the Mann Act and how the Mann Act was used. And today is still used to uh, police uh, movement of women to criminalize extramarital sex. And what, what does the Mann Act say? Do you know? Like, what is it? Is it a federal law? Yeah. Basically, the Mann Act says that transporting a woman for sexual purposes across uh, state lines is uh, trafficking. And it generally is used to prosecute people who are crossing the state lines for uh, prostitution exchange for something of value like if you cross state lines and you're kind of caught you know in a hotel room with somebody and they exchange sex for something of value it doesn't necessarily explain what that something of value is but you know could be money could be anything then you could be trafficked it could be dinner yeah it's very wide this interpretation you can interpret it in any way possible so it's at the latitude of the prosecutor i believe so the Mann Act is one of those things that um, was uh, used in early 1900s to uh, police women's uh, movement and the sexuality across the uh, United States. Later on, we had this uh, radical feminist movement, the Andrea Dworkin, the mm-hmm. Catherine McKinnons, the anti-pornography, the women against pornography, the likes of Gloria Steinem and uh, the rest. It's probably sometime in the 90s. That's about the time when the discourse started changing from uh, prostitution, pornography to trafficking. So more like female sexual slavery. Mm -hmm. This is a term that's coming from uh, Catherine uh, Barry. She had a book uh, about sex where prostitution is female sexual slavery. That all all prostitution is female sexual slavery. Essentially, according to this group, yes. Yeah, okay. I mean, there is absolutely no evidence to support that. There's no scientific evidence to support such a simplistic description of uh, prostitution or sex work. Well, I think it makes it easier on a certain set of people to oppose sex work if we conceive of specifically women who engage in sex work as having no agency and being in need of rescue sort of across the board. It's just easier to conceive of for folks who have I think a gut level distaste for sex work for whatever reasons than to think like oh these women are choosing this and I, I don't understand why right <laughs> like there's I think there's like a cognitive discomfort that that's easily resolved when you just cast all of those women as victims does that track with your work yes it works because of this idea of uh, victimhood has been constructed on uh, a pre-existent framework. If you remember in the 80s, there was uh, this uh, battered women's uh, movement, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Research done around that time erroneously posited that women could not leave abusive relationships because of something uh, called uh, learned helplessness. 
that they just got used to the situation and they would not there's not perceive it as abuse anymore. In reality, there are other factors that influence uh, these choices. It has nothing to do with learned helplessness. It has something to do with the inefficient system that's put in place to allegedly help women get out. Right? There is no safety net. There is uh, women being isolated from their families and friends. They really have nowhere to go, and the state doesn't really help much apart from sending uh, people to several counseling sessions or you know it depends on the state so the, yeah that that was the framework used like these women were better they didn't know any better they were victims of truly deviant abusive men and that was used in a lot of prosecutions but it created also this this toxic and unhealthy environment of uh, assigned victimhood Whereas, like, as long as you were the right type of victim, mm-hmm. you were given uh, rewards. You were rewarded for that. Like, the case could be won. And we have the victims' rights movement in California. We know the consequences of that. In between the political actions and the lobbying of the um, correctional officers' unions and the victims' rights movement representatives there, mm-hmm. There was an uh, unfortunate effect. The mass incarceration, the levels of incarceration in California were just skyrocketed. So the discourse shifts to the sort of victim framework, the sort of painting everyone, every woman involved in sex work is free of agency and intrinsically a victim. That shift happens in the 90s. So here we are today. Can you give us a little, I know that folks who listen to the show understand what SESTA-FOSTA are, but one mm-hmm. thing I don't know is, like, where did they come from? Like, who wrote these things, and how, how did we come to this this particular moment where it seems like the criminalization of sex work is accelerating at just a really alarming pace all of a sudden? What I want to point out is not who actually penned or uh, who supported this law, but is what it aims to do and how it came to this law. Yeah. If you remember a while ago, there was this documentary called I Am Jane Doe. Yes, but not everyone who's listening may remember it. So why don't you talk about it a little? Right, so I Am Jane Doe is like, it's a documentary priming the audience for an intervention. It creates this artificial need for addressing a problem right it tells you that there is a problem and the problem is sex trafficking of young girls on the internet now trafficking is a process it involves more than seeing a picture or posting an ad on the internet that in itself is not trafficking but when framed like this like i said people who are not aware of subtleties tend to believe that, right? They're, they're misdirected. So the social construction of trafficking or of Backpage or, or other sites as trafficking or traffickers, it's, it comes from this idea that demand has to be ended. And that is criminalization. It's like partial criminalization, right? It's right. Allegedly decriminalizing prostitution, decriminalizing the person who is providing the services and criminalizing the person who engages in buying the services. The Swedish model is also sold to everybody, is also promoted as a gender equality 
Swedish, right? Except that it's not Swedish. Catherine McKinnon took this idea to rocks in 1990 and gave them the, the, that impulse to lobby for what is now called the Swedish model. And once it passed in there, it spread all over the place. And the Swedish model is a, is a focus on de- ending demand, right? Yes. Is criminalizing demand. Yes. And what's, it, what's happening in practice? When you look at Sweden, what do you see? There's research pointing out to increased violence against sex workers. It's uh, women are back in the streets. People are uh, dying because of uh, the destructive elements of uh, stigmatization, increased stigmatization. Women cannot, women engaged in sex or anybody who are in, who is engaged in sex work uh, has little time to uh, screen um, potential customers or more lenient of who they want to see. Uh, or who they can see, you know, like it doesn't, they don't have time. Um, they're afraid of the police. The police is not uh, on their side, of course. Customers uh, can uh, demand uh, terrible things, knowing that the women are in need of money. It's completely uh, the opposite with what it says it does. It puts people at risk. Because anytime you criminalize, well, any part of a process, the people who are going to suffer the people who have the least power you know that even though they're theoretically criminalizing the customers mm-hmm. the customers have more sort of yeah they have the upper hand i'm putting myself at risk for you and a lot of the sex workers are in need right they're turning to you know i think there's probably some subsection of sex workers who just genuinely like the work and would do it regardless but there are not you know i think a lot of sex workers engage in it because they need the money not because this is their ideal job absolutely because this is the best option to make the money that they need to survive or to feed their family or whatever and so that that kind of desperation or need can really regardless of whether the criminalization is is legally targeted at the sex worker mm-hmm. winds up putting the sex worker in greater greater danger do i have that right yeah Okay. I mean, it's like once you take away a, a person's uh, source of income, whether it is uh, selling uh, cookies right. or uh, selling sex, there's this unrealistic expectation that somebody is just going to turn to something else because it's so easy to do it. It's not. There's women who are engaged in survival sex. Where, and I keep saying women, but I should just refer to other populations like queer and non-binary and gender non-conforming people and trans people, people who are really marginal, who are extremely poor, who are scared, who, who really have nowhere to go. Because it, believe it or not, we still live in a society where your appearance is dictating what kind of job you're getting. Right. Well, and a lot of them already have criminal records from engaging in sex work. And so the idea of just going and getting another job is is hindered by that as well you know if if they thought they had better options for supporting themselves than sex work they would be doing those better options absolutely absolutely i I have students who came out in class and confessed saying there is no other way there are things that are happening out there that prevent them from going to get a job a regular job where you're likely to be equally harassed and abused and uh, yelled at and even raped in many cases 
as you are in this criminalized situations like sex work or drug dealing and stuff like that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, as you said, you yourself were a victim of trafficking, actual trafficking. Yes. So, this Cessna Fossa is, is not the right way to go about addressing trafficking. But what mm, is... I believe that. Yeah, I think that we're... Yeah. But what is? Like, what what should be happening? So, let me explain why Cessna Fossa is not yeah. going to do anything about trafficking. In fact, I think it's going to make it worse. Of course, since this just passed, I have no empirical research to support my uh, uh, to support my statements. But um, I'll just talk out of experience. So when I was trafficked, I was a teenager. It looks like one of those uh, stories that the, the anti-trafficking movement uh, sells uh, through their can- like raising awareness campaigns. Just got abducted and. Next thing I knew, I was in an apartment with a pimp or a trafficker, his uh, bottom, and two other women. And I was told what was expected of me. And I realized pretty, pretty quickly that it was in my best interest to at least pretend that I was down with the program. I gained their trust and I escaped later only to just end up in Japan in the same situation. Unfortunately for me, I tried to escape several times. Uh, um, This hostess club I was kept in and it didn't work out because the police brought me back. So I realized pretty early in uh, the situation that I really had only myself. Wait, you went to the police in in Japan and they brought you back to the people who were holding you? Yes. Wow. What did they say? Can I ask? Why did they say they were doing that? They would not tell me. Like I had, I was so dehumanized. They didn't bother. They didn't bother to give me an explanation. Like I was not even a human being to them because I wasn't Japanese, right? Wow. And like here, we found your employee wandering around our station. Next time. Keep them locked in. 
yeah, so then I tried to do that several times. But the women I was there with, uh, they asked me to stop because to them, this wasn't trafficking. This was a contract. They wanted to work to send money home. So because of their pleading, I just decided that I was just going to put up with it for about four or five months, whatever long I had left there. And, you know, just try to get home, which I did. But unfortunately, two of the people that I was sent there with, they decided to remain and overstay their visa. And terrible things happened to them. And I decided to go back to Japan on a tourist visa and to help them out. And I stayed there for about 10 years, out of which about seven to eight, I helped women get out of such situation. Wow. How did you help them? Like, that's sort of one of the questions I'm asked for is like, what's actually helpful? What would have helped you and how did you help them? Generally, it's like, I think in the United States, people refer to this as rescue, but this is not necessarily rescue. I would go to places that I knew they had women uh, working there, like from Eastern Europe or foreign looking women, not Japanese. But you know, because the Japanese women, they, they have a certain level of... Uh, privilege right they're paid well they don't have to uh, do anything they don't want to they go to work whenever they want to these ones the other the women coming there on uh, entertainment visas it's a different story mm. so i knew where these places were at and uh i just created like a network of people like who are going to these places like clients and i would go work there work quote unquote and would just ask someone whom I could see that it was distraught or when I wasn't working in these places, I would just distribute. uh, They had phone cards back then and I would just write with a small marker on the back, call this number. I had like three or four cell phones that I would rotate uh, periodically, things like this. It was pretty dangerous, actually. Yeah. So if I'm a legislator here in the U.S. of A., and I want to do something actually helpful about human trafficking. Maybe I specifically want to focus on sex trafficking. What would be a helpful thing for me to do if I'm a legislator, if I, you know, here in, in the U.S.? Decriminalize prostitution. Yeah. Talk about how that actually helps anyone who's being trafficked. All right. So to go back to these experiences that I just explained. Yeah. Back then, prostitution in Japan is regulated and tolerated, right? Or at least it was. All kinds of sex work happen in Japan, and it's not necessarily something that it's frowned upon. Right? I mean that there are people who are, of course, morally opposed, and there are people who are not. And whenever something violent happens, if you need the police, the police will intervene. The police will pay attention, much more so than it is here. If, if you're Japanese, at least. If you're Japanese, at least. So we also need to ad- address our immigration. I mean, we have that here in the U.S. too. Yes. So looking at acts of violence against a person, looking at acts of violence against a child, right? Whether it is rape or you know, sexual violence, like rape, sexual assault, is a, is a large uh, is a large spectrum of uh, um, violent acts against a person. Any of that. There is already legislation put in place to deal with it. It's already illegal. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I don't understand how 
and who it helps creating more laws, bad laws that punish indirectly people who sell sex. Prostitution used to be a victimless crime. All criminal law has some sort of uh, moral application where it springs out of a moral, the idea of a moral order. But in the case of prostitution, it's much more nuances. It, it, it's, it's a little bit out of control, out of proportion. And because, like you said earlier, prostitution can't talk about sex workers now derogatory, right? Mm -hmm. But you can degrade them and humiliate them and stigmatize them in other ways, like assigning uh, victimhood to them, specific type of victimhood. All of this stuff is is sort of ostensibly being done in your name, right? As someone who was trafficked, right? Absolutely. That That they're literally invoking your story to justify these laws is that does that make you feel like how does that make you feel can you talk about that first of all like i was stunned i'm like this for the way that you're constructing this this doesn't this doesn't make sense second you're using something that has happened to me to punish people that's infuriating because it's not just about taking someone's experience of you know degradation and dehumanization and, and suffering in so on so many levels like i don't even want to go into details but taking that experience sanitize it reshape it and reward it in such a manner to help pass an agenda a specific political agenda that would benefit a specific group of people at the expense of the rest that to me is not just exploitative, it's criminal. And under the guise of help, it just pushes people farther on the ground, farther into the hands of real traffickers, whom apparently the government cannot find, in, in worse positions of poverty, in worse situations. People are going to lose their homes. This will increase but it's done in my name, in the name of someone like me. Who's benefiting, do you think, from SESTA-FOSTA? Um, there's a group of professionals. When you invent a social problem and you shape public perception around uh, prostitution as trafficking, right, you demand resources to be allotted to these victims. And you demand professionals to take care of these victims, right? And in the moment you do that, there's, a, there's an artificial industry that's created. And it has been, uh, it has been pretty lucrative for the people uh, in, uh, involved in this. Jonathan Simon has a paper on that with Philly, and they're talking about this group of technocrats with managerial positions that have to justify their jobs Mm. The way they do it is by arresting people, by putting people in jail, putting people in prison, putting people in programs. And in the case of trafficking in the sex industry, police doesn't go after traffickers. Police goes after the most vulnerable street sex workers. So we're heading into this really dark, terrible time for sex workers. And I think that for sexual expression in general, I mean, one of the side effects of SESTA-FOSTA is that 
companies like Microsoft are now saying, like, you can't talk about sexually explicit things on our platforms. Honestly, Skype is one of those platforms, which is where we're using to record this conversation, which some prosecutor could say falls afoul of Sesta Fossa. God only knows. But what can we do? What can we fucking do right now? I feel honestly like a little helpless which is why I'm making a show about it, because this is one of the only things I could figure out to do other than yelling about it on Twitter. But are there things that people at home, if they're concerned about this, if they're concerned about the criminalization of sexual expression and, and sex work, what would you say? The answer is this. People have to be united. The reason that culture change happened the way it did, it's because these people have a common goal. Right, and they have a way of putting the resources together and lobby and have convinced people. This didn't happen in one day. It was 30 years at least of continuous lobbying and on, unsystemic on, on attack on uh, the sexual liberation of women, the sexual liberation of everyone. And they, research, investing in research and good research is another possibility but thanks to bush Hmm. that's not necessarily something that is going to happen anytime soon what would you want to research if you had all the money uh ways of discerning between trafficking and voluntary prosecution criminal justice reform i have to remember that criminalization is probably the most extreme form not probably definitely the most extreme form of stigmatization need to look at why people stigmatize other people and who benefits from stigmatizing human beings, right? And also, how do we undo stigma once it has already taken root in the culture, I would imagine? In addition to that, I have to look at how the social movements shaped the discourse around prostitution as trafficking and how they silenced other voices. But people have to also take in consideration the well-being that is needed for uh, for to achieve these things, like... You can't fight when you're empty. You can't fight when you're alone, when you don't have a, a community, when you have when you don't have emotional support to go to. You know, you have to look out for others. You have to build a community in which everyone looks at the common good rather than individual well-being first, right? Right. And then I would add my own to the list of things people can do is like really brass tacks political organizing and voting, right? We need to release the religious rights grip on our government, both federal and state and local governments. And that means we have to address gerrymandering and other forms of voter Mm -hmm. suppression, which is what keeps them there because they don't represent the majority of Americans, not in the least. And so I think that getting politically active uh is 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 part of this as well both i think the community building stuff that you just talked about is so important and one of the things that we can all do is just sort of be kind and human to each other Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and that's that gets underestimated the power of that you know whether you do that on social media or in person with people or in your own community like what however you define community but i also think that like we need to be flexing our electoral and political muscles in really organized ways as well Yes, it has to be because like so far nobody really did anything and these people got so much power and so much recognition. It's just, there's, there's a sickness and the sickness can has to be addressed. Otherwise, it's probably much worse. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for spending time explaining it to me and to all my listeners. I really appreciate your perspective and your work uh, and your voice. Thank you so much. I hope I can help more. Yeah, absolutely. And tell people how they can follow your work. Do you, should people follow you on Twitter or if people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me on Twitter. And I guess like I have some work that I published, but it's on, I think you can find it on the internet. And what's your Twitter handle? If you look for my name, probably I'll show up. So I think it's anarchocriminology or something like that. I change it often. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can find me on Twitter also at Jacqueline F, which is J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. And you can find me on Instagram at Jacqueline Fable. You can find this show wherever podcasts are available, Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher. When you're in there, give us five stars. Give us a little review. That is how you help other folks find the show. Or you could just also use social media and also just your mouth and tell other people, hey, you should listen to Unscrewed. It's really good. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles. And our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.